Good evening, everybody. Yeah, I know, Connie, you're looking at me like, what are you doing up there instead of Jeremy? Well, Jeremy, in his very first elders meeting, lost his contact, and now he can't see. So, <laughs> so he gave me his list of songs, and we're going to do them. We don't have the slides going, so it will be songbook only tonight. Our first song... Oh, wait. I think what I'm... I don't have my head in the right place yet. Okay, we're going to do three songs, and then it's supposed to be me reading in prayer, but Jeremy's going to attempt to read without glasses. Um, one more song, and then Chris will have our lesson. Our first song this evening will be number 746. 746, When He Comes in Glory. If you would, let's stand for this song, please. Oh, how sweet will be to meet the Lord when he comes in glory by and by. What a song of praise will be out for when he comes in glory by and by. How sweet, how sweet when he comes in the sky. What next song is number 870. 870. I'm happy today. The verses are short, so let's do all four verses. I'm happy today. Oh yes, I'm happy today. Here Jesus Christ, I'm happy today. In Rossi's day,
Our next song is number 937. 937. I stand in awe. Sing this two times through, please. After this, Jeremy will have a reading and prayer. Will you pray, please? Father God, we are so thankful for, for your love, for your presence, for all that you give us, all that you do for us in life. We're thankful, Father, for allowing us to assemble in freedom and peace, to get together to worship you, to study your word, sing praise to you, Father. And we pray that the things that we do are acceptable to you, that we'll be edified, Father, by being here, and we can uplift your name as we leave here. We are mindful, Father, of many who are struggling, many who are struggling with their health, many who are uh, struggling with uh, depression, anxiety, many struggling with grief. Uh, there are so many, Father, that 
that we know that we're concerned about, that we care about, and we ask your blessings on them, that you restore their health, that you uh, help us to be an encouragement to them, help us to do what we can, Father, to, to serve them, to, to help them uh, navigate these difficult times. Father, we're, we're thankful for, for your word, for your spirit. We're thankful for your son, most of all, and for all that he means to us, all that he's done for us, all that we have uh, through him and his sacrifice. Just help us to, uh, to remember what he's done each day. Help us to better ourselves because of it. And when our time on earth is, is finished, Father, bring us home to be with you in heaven. Let's continue to guide our service this evening. Bless us this week, Father, as we, as we go out into the world. Uh, just help us to be a shining light and a guiding example. Uh, continue to watch over us and protect us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The reading tonight is from 2 Kings chapter 22. I'm on 32 font and it's still fuzzy, so bear with me. Uh, verses 1 and 2, 2 Kings 22, 1 and 2. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah, and she was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. You read that too good. I think I'm up here for no reason. <laughs> Our next song will be number eight. Actually, let me announce the uh, invitation. Our invitation song will be number 346, if you want to mark that now. 346, it won't be very long. Our next song is number 841, Sing and Be Happy. 841. If you would, let's stand for this song, please. If the skies above are gray and you are in the blue, if the gas and mercy gray all of the blue, let us silver find that side and the healthy land. Look like the fancy, my friend, trust in Jesus Christ. Sing and be happy, rest. 
Please be seated. Let your Bibles be turning over to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to spend our time tonight together looking at the life of King David. David's kind of an interesting test case because we know more about David's life than literally anyone else in Scripture with the exception of Jesus himself. God talks more about David than he does about any other character in all of the Bible. And you've got to wonder why. What is it about David that God wants us to see? And there's something special in David's life that God wants us to draw out. He wants us to take notice of something in David's life, probably like we've said throughout this series, a couple of somethings that are important uh, in God's value system are no doubt we're supposed to see those things. But at least one of those things we're going to fo focus on tonight. Where we're going to spend our time tonight. I'm on now. Now? There you go. Okay. I'll just stay here. It's okay. First Samuel 16. So we know more about David than we do about any other uh, character in the Old Testament or the New Testament, with the exception of Jesus himself. And so... What does God want us to get out of David's life? We're talking about the characters that are found in Matthew chapter 1 that are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He gives us this genealogy for a couple of different reasons. I think in Matthew's gospel, Matthew attracts us to broken people. People who are so messed up, you would think that their stories should never be shared. Certainly not be shared in the genealogy of the Savior of the world. But there they are. And Matthew draws attention to these things because he knows that God loves to use broken people. And he's trying to get across to his readers that God can use you just like he uses these people. I mean, if God can use a guy like Solomon, if God can use, if God can use a guy like Judah, if God can use uh, someone like Rahab, he can use you too. And he can do it in powerful ways because it's not about you, it's about him. And so... He points us to David. So what are we going to do with David? What lessons can we learn? Should we be seeking out from David's life? Well, let's just walk through his life very quickly. Let's do a character sketch very quickly of David's life. The first time you meet David, he's a boy. He's in 1 Kings chapter 16. And he's not even present. Not the first time you meet him. He's not even there. Not the first time you meet him. And so... Saul has sinned against the Lord, and his kingdom is being taken away from him. God is looking for a man who is after his own heart, a characterization that David will have for the rest of his life and on into eternity. May that be said about all of us, right? He was, or she was, someone after God's own heart. It's said about David, here early on in his life, you see this incredible faith that's going to characterize David throughout the rest of his life. But early on, the first time you meet David, he's not even present. The, the kingdom is being ripped away from Saul. And Samuel, God's prophet at that time, the last of the, the, last of the judges, uh, 
is tasked with anointing the brand new king of Israel. He himself, Samuel, has anointed Saul 20 years ago at this point. Uh, So Samuel is advanced in age at this point. He's an old man. Uh, And God comes to him again and he says, you need to find a new king. Um, Saul is not wanting what I want. He isn't prioritizing me. He doesn't have my values. And so he wants a man, a king, who will prioritize God. And so he sends word to Samuel, go to Jesse's family in Bethlehem and anoint one of his sons. I'll tell you which one when you get there. And so Samuel shows up at Dave, or Jesse's door, knocks on the door, I'm assuming. Jesse strolls out all seven of his sons uh, from Eliab, who himself is apparently quite handsome and very muscular. He's tall and strong, which reminds us of Saul, right? Saul is the picture of a king. If you go back through and you look at how he was chosen, he's a humble guy when he starts out. In fact, he doesn't even want to be king. They kind of pressure him into becoming king. But now, 20 years later, uh, that mantle, he wants to hold on to it pretty, pretty closely. But back then, he's just a tall, good-looking, strong guy. And they say, that guy right there, he must be the Lord's anointed. We appoint him. And so that's what they did. And for the next 20 years, he reigns and he rules. And he does fairly well. But then he sins against the Lord. And now Samuel is tasked with finding a new king who's a man after God's own heart. He shows up at Jesse's door and he sees all these tall, strong, good-looking guys. And he approaches Eliab, David's oldest brother, first. He says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And God says, not him. And he goes down the line. And each time God says, not him. All seven of the brothers are, are... have been asked now, and God says, not him, seven times. And so Samuel kind of looks over at Jesse and he says, are all the boys here? Are, are these all your sons? Surely you've missed one. And Jesse kind of says, oh, I had a, had a senior moment, I guess. I, I forgot one of them. He's still out in the fields. He's the youngest boy. He's not. You kind of read between the lines here when you, when you hear Jesse's statement, but it's almost like he's saying, well, he's not kingly material. He's, he's the boy. He's the kid in the family. He's just some, some little runt, you know. I didn't even think of bringing him in when you called this meeting. I didn't even think of bringing in David. Surely he's not the king. Surely it's one of the other seven. And Samuel says, well, it's not one of them. Bring in David. So David comes, and immediately Samuel says, this is the one. And there, there at, in their front yard, I'm assuming, David is anointed the new king of Israel. and He's probably 15 to 18 years old. He's a young guy. And so... From then on, he is king of Israel. But if you know David's story, even a cursory reading of it, not things are not going to go well for David uh, for the next several decades. In fact, he's going to be chased. But if you fast forward to, to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, you find the, the incredible story of David and Goliath. Uh, he has approached the battlefield. Now the Philistines are on that side. The Israelites are on this side. And there's a Philistine giant. You know him as Goliath. He's massive. He's nine and a half feet tall. He's a warrior since he was a kid. He's got all these weapons. He's incredibly fierce. And he's coming out for the last little over a month, the last 40 days or so. And he shouted at Israel's encampment, if anyone would come out and face me, are you all too scared? Is your God too small? For 40 days, he says those kinds of things, taunting Israel and Yahweh. And finally, David, the king, shows up. 
And you know what the king's doing there, right? He's delivering lunch. <laughs> he, he is a delivery driver. And his dad has sent him with bread and cheese. And he's there to give his brothers bread and cheese. They're in the army. And so he's delivering lunch for them. And so he delivers lunch, but he hears what Goliath is saying. And so he goes over and he says, who does this guy think he is? He's taunting Israel. He's taunting Yahweh and Yahweh's people. Who does this guy think he is? And he says it enough that word gets back to Saul. And so Saul brings him in. He says, we don't have anybody else to fight him. We've been sitting here for a little over a month and no one else has, has come and taken up the mantle. So I guess you're it. Who should have gone out and fought Goliath? Who should have had the biggest faith in all of Israel? Saul, right? In fact, he is physically the one who matches best with Goliath. He is, when he is appointed king, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And so physically, he has the best bet against him. If it were an even fight, Saul is the best bet over all of Israel. But even more than that, as God's representative... He should have had the most faith out of anyone else in the nation. Even had he been elderly, even had he not been able to walk well, even had he not had any weapons, he still should have gone out to that field and challenged Goliath. But he didn't. And you see in that a lack of faith on Saul's part, especially when the boy king comes up untrained, and says, I'll fight him with a slingshot because your, your armor's been untested. It's interesting. And so you fast forward even, even from there, uh, just a couple of months, possibly a couple of years later. And now David has worked his way up after killing uh, the giant Goliath and freeing Israel from uh, Philistine, um, not captivity, but they were... Or, uh, slavery, kind of making them, making the Philistines were in charge of Israel at that point. And so he's freed them from that. And so they are still fighting all these battles, and David is now the general over Israel's army. And so he comes back into Jerusalem on occasion, and the, the people will sing, Well, Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And that eats Saul up. He's, he's just riddled with jealousy. He can't handle anything that's going on. Nothing good can be said of David. And so on at least two different occasions, he tries to kill his general. In fact, David's not just Saul's general. He's also his musician. He's the guy who, when Saul goes through these crazy, almost insane fits of rage... They bring in David, and David plays the harp, and he calms Saul down. You, you see how he's playing this minor role. He, he's not taking charge, although the right to rule, like we talked about this morning, is his because he's king. It's not Saul's. God has ripped the kingdom away from Saul. The right to rule belongs to David, but he's too humble and too righteous to demand it. And you see that time and time again throughout David's life. He sits back and he waits on God's timing. What do we call that? What do we call that when you sit back and wait on God's timing? You call it faith. You call it faith. When we're scared and we don't know what to do because his plan isn't aligned with our plan, but we wait and we trust in him, we stick close to him, what do you call that? It's called faith. 
and David has it in spades. I think that's one of the things. I think that's the thing we're going to talk about tonight. I think that's the thing that God wants us to see in David's life. I think that's why he, he, he goes over so much of David's life, gives us so many different illustrations from David's life, so that as you read through this, this man's life, you think everything was pitted against him. He is king, but he doesn't rule. Not for another couple of decades, he doesn't rule. Anybody. And even when he does begin to rule, he doesn't rule over all of Israel. He gets the short end of the stick time and time and time again. He's kind to Saul, but what does Saul do? He tries to kill him. He helps Israel win all these battles, helping Saul himself. What does Saul try to do? He tries to have him murdered. For a decade, David is going to be on the run from Saul. God's anointed one is chasing the new king of Israel. It's, it's the flip-flop. Uh, things don't make sense when you come into David's life. You would think that the reigning king of Israel would not be on the run for his life living in caves. But he is. And he refuses to fight back. Refuses every time to fight back. And even twice has Saul's life in his hands. Can take Saul's life anytime he wants to. But he refuses to. And in fact, when Saul dies, David writes this beautiful poem of mourning for, uh, for Saul and, and his friend Jonathan. And actually has the man that killed Saul, he kills him. Um, because he dared to uh, strike the Lord's anointed. So you see David's faith, just it's so Big, so much trust throughout his life. You just see time and time again where things do not go his way. And you would, might expect him to say, well, I'm just kind of done. I'm just kind of frustrated. How many years would it take for you to be on the run? If you're innocent and you're on the run for something you didn't do, for being righteous, how long would it take you to get a little frustrated? How long would it take you to drop the ball? How long would it take you to stop trusting? How long would it take you to stop, start questioning? David never does any of those things. Some impressive faith from, from this man. And I think that's why God has drawn our attention to it so much throughout Scripture. And in fact, the verse Jeremy read for us tonight so eloquently, by the way, uh, points to David as the example par excellence. He is Israel's king. And in fact, every king after him will always be David's the example that they have to match up to. Uh, he's the one that they ought to be like. And so scripture will say, well, this guy was righteous, so he was like David. He trusted in God. Or this guy was not like David, and he was a bad king, and he trusted in himself, and he did his own thing. He went his own way. So every king after David is, is compared to, to him. So after Saul dies, you would expect David to just take the throne of Israel, right? He is Israel's throne now. Israel's, the, for all intents and purposes, the pretender to the throne is now gone. So you'd expect the right, the, the one who has the right to rule to take the throne. He doesn't. He doesn't. In fact, he sits back and he waits. And Judah, his own tribe, anoints him as their king, but only over that one tribe. 
And so he's there for seven years, for almost another decade after being on the run from Saul for not doing anything wrong. He reigns over one tribe for seven years. Now remember, at least 17 years ago, he's been promised to reign over the entire nation of Israel. It hasn't happened yet. Do you see David pointing the finger at God? Do you see David blaming God? You see him questioning. What do you see this guy doing? You see him patiently waiting. Things don't always happen in our timetable, do they? And when they don't, we sit back and we stay close to God. Why? Because he has all the answers. And things may not always work out the way you want them to work out. You stick close to him, though, and he's going to take care of you. And David's story tells us that. In fact, in the book of Psalms, when David's an old man, he's going to look back on his life during this time and all the other times uh, when he was taken advantage of. And he's going to say, you know, I've never seen the Lord's anointed forsaken. I've never seen a man that God loves forsaken. And you've got to think, as you read through David's life, just time and time again, where he was forsaken, when he was betrayed. But he looks back as an old man and says, not, not a single time. God's been there for me every single time. Some impressive faith, isn't it? Where he just sat and waited on God's timing. And he always did the right thing, right? Sometimes when we're struggling, it's easy to make sacrifices that aren't righteous. David never did that. Interesting, right? So after he is uh, crowned king over Judah, he waits seven years. And then finally, the rest of Israel um, capitulates, I suppose. They give over, and, and he is crowned king over the entire nation of Israel. By this point, he's probably 30, 35 years old. So still in his prime, but over the last 15 to 20 years, has been ridiculed, hunted, hated, and betrayed time and time and time again. He's even had his wife stolen from him. Just time and time again, he is let down, forsaken. But there toward the end of his life, he says, not a, not a single time was I ever forsaken, and not a single time have I ever seen the Lord's anointed forsaken. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is... I said earlier that not a single time did David ever make a compromise. That's not exactly true. There's two occasions where he does. But we learn an incredible amount, maybe more from his sins than we do from the rest of his life. And at least they shore up this idea that David's faith is what God wants, to see, wants us to see out of his life. It's the lesson he wants us to learn from David's life. This incredible trust. Look what happens here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, we're going to start in verse 15. You're familiar with this passage. I'm sure you are. Uh, David has sinned with Bathsheba. She has become pregnant. And Uriah refuses to uh, go be with his wife. And so everyone is about to find out that, uh, that David is the, the child's father instead of Uriah. David has Uriah killed. Eventually, um, the child is born, but God has a punishment, further punishment for David. The child will die because of David's sin. Look what he says here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah, Uriah's wife bore to David, 
and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do, harm. He may do himself some harm. So when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. And then he went into his own house and he asked. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Now you're thinking exactly what they're thinking if you've never read through this story before. What is going on? Well, keep reading. Verse 21. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. What's going on? Listen to what he says. Listen to his reasoning. Listen to what he was thinking during that week where the child was so sick. Verse 22, he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, listen to this, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Isn't that interesting? He's throwing himself on God's mercy. Something has happened that David is responsible for. He's accountable. He didn't think he was early on. He had lied to himself. Finally, Nathan convinces him that he is accountable. And David is just upset with himself, grieved at himself. He knows he's accountable now. Then this, this happens and he prays and he fasts and he won't eat. And he's just torn up like any of us would be in this situation. And he, his mindset, though, is... God is merciful, and who knows? Maybe he'll have mercy on me. What's he doing? He's trusting God in the midst of his pain, in the midst of an insane situation, the worst week of his life. He's trusting God. He's waiting on him. It reminds us of the passage from Isaiah 40, doesn't it? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. That's what David's, that's where he's at right here. Flip over another couple of chapters to 2 Samuel 24. Let's talk about this sec, second incident. I think that sheds even more light possibly on David's incredible trust in the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10. He has counted the people. He calls it a census here at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, he wants to know how many warriors he has. There's some armies that are encroaching on David's territory, and he wants to know how many warriors he has at his disposal. Now, why does he want that? Because David started doing math. And he says, well, these guys have 30,000 guys. I want to know how many I have. Those guys have 50,000. I want to know how many warriors I have. Why does that not make sense? Because this is the 16-year-old boy who approached a nine-and-a-half-foot-tall giant with a slingshot, and he won. God's math doesn't always work with humans. In fact, it doesn't. It rarely works. Because he is in the midst of it, and he is bringing things about the way that he wants them to happen. And so it doesn't always make sense. But David here is trying to do math. And, uh, and so he gets in trouble with that because it is, and it, and it's indicative of... A, a, a lack of trust in God. Let's know what happens here. God, 
You're, you're going to see this pretty clearly here in verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. This is perhaps one of the wildest things in all of Scripture. God gives David three choices. Which one of these things do you want to happen to you? He doesn't have a good option here. All these are horrible options. But David has to pick one of them. So listen to the options. And then focus in especially in on the one that David chooses and why he chooses that one. Verse 13. So Gad came to David and he told him. He said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. No good options, right? Everything's bad. So you got to figure out which one you want. And David, listen to what he says here in verse 14. He said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So there again, it's just it's an automatic response from David. He relies on God's mercy. When he's in pain from the loss of his child, it's the first thing that he thinks. In opposition to literally everyone else around him, he says, well, God is merciful. Who knows? Maybe he'll relent. Just throws himself on God's mercy. And here, he's got three bad options. And so he kind of doesn't even have, he doesn't even seem to take a moment to think about it. He says, well, just let God's mercy fall on his mercy. Just let, let, the, let the three days with the pestilence come. And so God comes through the land and he kills 70,000 Israelites. And the angel of the Lord, if you keep reading through this, the rest of these verses right here, in chapter 24, the angel of the Lord stops at Ornan the Jebusite's threshing floor. Do you know what that threshing floor came to be known as? The temple. That's where David built the temple. And he pays an egregious price for it here. Why? Because he's making restitution. He's repented. He's repented. He buys this land from Ornan uh, for a small fortune. And he builds an altar there, and he praises God for his mercy. When he's in pain, he throws himself on God's mercy. When he's terrified, he throws himself on God's mercy because that's where his trust is. He trusts him implicitly. That's, I think, what God wants us to get out of David's story. At least it's one of the things that we need to understand from David's story so that we can emulate it in our own lives. When we're scared, when we're hurting, when we don't know where to turn, we throw ourselves on his mercy and just wait and trust that he's going to make all things good. That's the promise. That for his people, to those who love him and are called according to his purposes, he will mold us more closely into the image of Christ. So the things that happen to us, he uses for our benefit, to make us align more closely to Jesus. So even in the midst of our pain, 
even in the midst of our grief and fear. He's using those things to make us more like Christ. That's something we can learn from David. Tonight, if you're struggling with your faith, David's right there with you. The characters in Scripture are right there with you. Remember, if you just take a, a very quick read through Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, where we're getting these names from, those men and women struggled. But what? They were always right there with God. They stuck with them. They didn't leave. They didn't make sacrifices. They didn't make compromises. They stuck with them. And so tonight, if you're ready to sacrifice for him, to put him on in baptism, to have your sins washed away. We want to aid you in that so God can add you to his kingdom so that he can add you to his family here in this place. Maybe you've already made that decision and you just need the prayers of this congregation to get on the right road to stay faithful to him in a tough time. Won't you come tonight as we stand and sing? Good evening, church family. Chris, great lesson, brother. Appreciate you. Uh, a couple announcements before we are dismissed. As a reminder, there's a teen devo for middle school and high school at the Williams House after services. Also, Trick or Trunk is tentative. Uh, it's scheduled for next Saturday um, on the tw- 23rd 
if you can help out pass out treats and candies and all that wonderful uh, sugary stuff, uh, there's a sign-up sheet on the foyer board, so please sign up so we know that you can help out with that. Two weeks. Thank you. It comes so quickly. Huh? Yeah, it will feel like a week. Um, also, uh, Rush is a youth rally at Freed Hardman t- in Tennessee University. It's uh, November 5th through the 7th. We are taking the middle school and high school kids to this. Um, it's $30 to go. Uh, I do recommend you sign your child up for it. It should be a lot of fun. It's, um, but I need to know by next Sunday if your child is going or not because I need to get a hotel room, and so I need to make the reservations for that. So uh, please sign up on the four-year board if you're planning on going to that before you leave. Um, also, uh, ladies, on the Tuesday morning Bible class will start back on October 19th. Uh, here at the building. It starts at 10 o'clock in the morning, and all ladies are invited to be part of that activity, so I do encourage you, if you can make that, um, I know it should be should be very, very good. Um, also, remember, continue to keep Tanya Ward in your prayers. Uh, this Tuesday, she heads to North Carolina to donate her kidney. Uh, remember her and Brian as they travel. Remember Tanya as she has a surgery, um, and, uh, and remember that at this that surgery goes successfully. Also, um, John Klein, Brendan Klein, stopped by our house um, yesterday. John Klein is doing better. He had his knee surgery this past week, and um, he's doing a lot better. Uh, his recovery is from 10 to 13 weeks. Um, so remember to keep him in your prayers. Randy Jones, that's Terrell Spitzer's brother, has upcom- upcoming kidney surgery. Uh, he has kidney cancer, so remember to keep him in your prayers. Remember continue to continue uh, to keep Kelly Williams in your prayers. She had great news last week uh, from the doctors in Columbus, uh, so that was good to hear. God answers prayers, doesn't he? And um, but she will start her radiation at the end of the end of the month. So remember to continue to keep her in her prayers. Uh, Norma Dennison will need another month of physical therapy, so remember her in your prayers as well um, as she goes through physical therapy. And Tony Blake just called me a few minutes ago. Um, he called me yesterday and just left me a message a few minutes ago. Eric Blake has COVID. Uh, he's in ICU, um, and he has COVID and pneumonia. So right now the lab said everything's good, so things are looking up for him. At first it was pretty bad. It was very critical. But uh, things he's stable right now. Uh, so remember continue to keep uh, Eric Blake in your prayers as he uh, – recovers from COVID and pneumonia this time. That's all the announcements I have. If you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been prepared in the conference room. You may leave and do that now. We will sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Our last song this evening is number 829. 829, Mansion Over the Hilltop. Sing the first and last verse, and then Dickie will lead us in prayer. I'm satisfied with just casting
Gracious and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for today. We're thankful to gather here this evening and hear your words. Sing songs of praise to you, Father. And Father, we hope everything said and done here tonight is pleasing to thy sight. Father, we ask that you be with those that have been mentioned that are sick, those that are fighting disease. We ask that you put your hand on them and bless them like only you can. Father, we thank you for the church here at Rome. We ask that you watch over us and guide us. And Father, we ask that you be with our elders as they watch over us and lead this flock. Father, as we prepare to go out into the world, Father, we ask that you guide, guard, and direct us, and that we turn to your word, that we stay close to you, Father, and we be the light that you want us to be. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.